You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Gary. Before we dive into unpacking that scripture, I just want to set up kind of where we're, we're going for a few weeks here. Uh, today is really a laying a foundation, an opener for where I want to be going, what we want to be talking about. And um, I want to ask you, have you ever seen or observed a behavior on someone that just made you turn your head sideways? Just once in a while, right? Uh, I, I, I remember being years ago in Vietnam, and I'd see all these older guys out in the street, and they'd have these like five to six inch long hairs growing from a mole in their face, and these two to three inch long pinky fingernails, and I remember just being so perplexed, like what the, what, what is that about? 
And I later found out that the, that the hair growing off the mole was believed to be like good luck. It was a sign of that you have good health and good fortune, and they would never think of plucking or cutting them. And the, and the long fingernail was all about um, a sign of status. A person who was you know, well off enough to not have to do manual labor could afford to have long fingernails. Now, most of them use them for you know, other things, but anyways, it was like... There, there is this, this principle, though, that it was until I understood what they believed, the behavior just struck me as odd and strange and, you know, a little, a little weird, right? And, and a far less trivial example than that would be that today we have all of these hot topics in our culture, these controversial topics, these culture wars, right? And many times at the core of them, there are different beliefs, different worldviews. And my desire is to attempt to speak a little bit about these worldviews and these different beliefs and perspectives that, that feed into how we see um, one side or another of a conversation. And so as we dive into this scripture, particularly today, uh, I will say, you know, laying the foundation might feel a little philosophical. I hope it can come more practical as we, we go through. Um, but the main point I want us to catch as we look into the scripture that Gary just read to us is that the Bible has a high value for the natural material world. And it is based on that high value that it also has a high view of um, morality. The morality is actually rooted in the idea that God made the world in which we live not just in religious legalism. And so when we think about this scripture that Gary just read to us, right? Look at the way it, it's broken up. I really see it in two parts, or it appears to be in two parts. But as we go through, I hope you'll see that it's, it's one whole. But the two parts that I saw when I first start reading it is, first there is this declaration about the goodness of what God has made, right? Like the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? The skies proclaim the work of his hands. There's this goodness in what God has made that the psalmist is speaking of. And saying that what God has made actually points to um, his handiwork. Right? When you look at it, you can see the design. You can see the wisdom of it. And then it seems to transition into this you know, endearing terms where he speaks about the goodness of God's law. So we have really here the goodness of God's world and the goodness of God's word. And they seem to be, it seems when I read it at first, it seems like it just takes this, this turn all of a sudden, right? We're talking about how good the world is, and the next thing you know, he's going on about the goodness of God's law. And they seem separate, but they're actually a unified whole. So the outline I want us to think about today is that the, the natural law and the moral law are actually held together. But yet there are views out there that want to pull them apart from each other. And so just think with me for starts here, those first few verses, right? Look at them again. I just said, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They pour forth speech. They reveal knowledge. It says they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. But then we have, going into verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. It goes on talking about they give joy to the heart. They give light to our eyes. 
He talks about them being more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. It's very enduring. And what I want us to catch as we look at this is that these, these things, the natural law and the moral law being one, held together in Scripture, is really teaching us that to flourish in this world that God has created, we have to learn to apply his ways. What he's spoken. Another way you could say it would be, we need to learn God's word and ways to live well in God's world. Okay? In order to live well in his world, we seek to understand his word and his ways. C.S. Lewis was quoted saying this, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. Now, we could put any categories of people in here. You can say two groups of people may have different views of the universe, right? But he says this, they both can't be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. And, and the, the desire that I have, and I believe the desire that Scripture has, is to teach us the way that leads to life in the real universe, the real world in which we live. And a significant footnote in this passage of Scripture that we read is that the universe itself, the material world in which we live, actually points to us God's ways. It teaches them to us. It speaks of him and his ways. And we can actually learn his ways by looking at the world he's made. The early church fathers talked about how God's revelation comes to us in two books. His word, the Bible, and his world, creation itself. And we can read the written words and we can read nature itself to understand the revelation that God wants to give us. And the obvious evidence that this creation gives us about God himself is that he's gloriously good, that he's wise, points to him. You know, in the same way when you pick up your iPhone, maybe you marvel at like, I do, I know I do. How does this thing work, right? And I'm like, I'm just like, it's amazing, all these images, and it's floating through the airwaves, and, 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 and it points me to the fact that there's some people out there who are way smarter than me. The, the iPhone reminds me of Steve Jobs and his team that had this vision to create this thing. Or I remember being in Singapore years ago and just marveling at the layout of the city. When I'm in this city, it points to these brilliant civil engineers. Or when you eat a good meal, anybody like, you know, Il Terrazzo? Anybody been to Il Terrazzo in Victoria? A little shout out to Il Terrazzo. Or another good restaurant. Um, you know, when you eat good food, it points to a great chef. You'd be silly to think that, that that just arrived on the plate that way all on its own. And when we look at creation, we can observe things about who God is. We can see his glory and his power and his majesty when we look at the sun like Kelly spoke of, or the moon and the stars or the mountains or volcanoes or trees or oceans and waves or thunder and lightning and wind. And right, there's just, there's all this power and glory and majesty. Or you can see his intelligence and his wisdom and the law in the universe, right? When you look on an atomic level, neurons and protons and electrons and all the way this stuff works, or DNA and the information that is passed on through DNA, or the laws of physics, these constants that without them, life 
would not exist. The universe itself would not exist without these laws that hold nature together. And we see design and purpose all around us. Wings for flying. Fins and gills for life underwater. Eyes and ears to see and hear. Trees for oxygen. Or, you know, ecosystems. There's purpose everywhere. I went to the IMAX with a group of kids a couple weeks ago, and we watched the Serengeti movie, and it's just going through all these details from, like, you know, the predators to the prey to even their, like, their dung and the beetles who come and stir it up. There's just purpose through it all. Design. And what we can see in this is that God has a design, a way, a law that holds the world together. And in short, this natural world tells us of this glorious and wise God. And as we live our lives, we are in many ways seeing and hearing and touching and tasting and smelling expressions of the glory of God consciously and unconsciously, every day, all the time, everywhere. That's just life on earth. And it's proclaiming to us. It's declaring to us. It's making it obvious and evident we live immersed in it. This natural world beckons and invites us to know this good God who made it. My hope as you go about the remainder of summer here in beautiful British Columbia, that you would be drawn to want to know the good God who made this world. And then you see this transition we talked about, right, where he seems to all of a sudden start talking in these enduring terms about the law of God. It's perfect. It's good. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. Gives light to my eyes, right? Like all these wonderful ways he talks about it. It sounds so different than how we talk about law these days, don't you think? We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told the way things ought to be. And yet he's like, it's good. I need to know it. I need to understand it. I need to learn it. And you see, like many generations and cultures for time, like for years and years and years, have held together this reality that the natural law and the moral law, they work together. They're one and the same. They're not separate from each other. Jesus and scripture holds them together. Jesus makes this statement in Luke 6. He says this, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You hear what he's saying? He's saying this law, this order, existed before the world. It is the very thing that brought it to be, that brought it to exist. And if you do away, if you undo the law, you undo the universe. The universe can't exist without it. Another way it says in Hebrews 1.3, it says that his word actually upholds the universe. It's held together by this word. Another one you look back, right? The word in the beginning was the word, John says. It's all throughout the scripture. To illustrate it and think about it with me for a minute, imagine if we removed the sun from our world. It keeps coming up today, the sun. You get rid of the sun, it's not long before life 
on earth ends. Not just gets harder, it ends. It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Like, I don't know, I'm not a brilliant scientist myself, all the implications, but I know this much, that life on earth would not work without the sun. And you remove this, this transcendent law, this intelligence, this design, and everything starts to unravel. And I honestly think a lot of what we're seeing these days is the unraveling. When you remove that truth, right? And there have been different philosophies and worldviews over the years that have sought to pull apart these things, the natural law and the moral law, and see them as separate. In the academic world, often they talk these days about the fact and value split. These are separate things. If you think of it in these terms, you have here facts, the, the scientific things that we can all see and know, and they're verifiable truths, right? These should be the, the, the things that drive our public life and our public world. But our values are this subjective, personal, and should be left private thing that have no connection to these facts, that have no grounding in this material world. You know what I'm talking about, right? The one fact is considered objective. The values are considered subjective. We have two really common views that I want to look at. I don't want to spend a ton of time on them, but I want to touch on them really quickly. Much older than our modern day were these, these, these isms, Platonism and Gnosticism, Okay? And what these terms speak of are philosophies that were really prevalent in the years of the early church. And in many ways, as we start to look at them, you're going to see how they actually still work today in the church and in our world. And then more new, more popular, more trendy would be, if lack of better terms, I'd say evolutionary materialism. And I'll specifically put in the materialism part. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's just look for a second at what Plato taught, okay? Platonism. Plato taught that you're this two-part being, a body and a soul. And that actually the real you is your soul. That the body is actually something bad that your good soul needs to learn to master and control. Right? You got to learn to rule it. And that ultimately salvation was escape from this body. One day your soul will be freed from this, this, this yucky body. Anybody relate with that? And uh, that was what Plato taught. And very similar to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was something that you hear again and again. You, might not, you never really hear the term in the New Testament. But there are tons of the writings of the apostles are fighting against this idea. And, and again, it's this idea, the true self is your soul. And Gnostics, they believed that there were actually levels of deity, okay? Different levels for the gods. And that the really high, superior level gods would never mess around with something like matter and material. And there was actually a sub-level evil deity that created this world. And, and that the world and the nature in itself was in itself gross and evil and not good. 
and that no good God would ever mess around with this silly matter stuff, this natural world. That your body is separate from you, again, like Plato taught. And similarly, that salvation is departure from this world, this natural world. Now, can you see how we've sadly actually preached this in the church in some ways? See, we've often preached like you come, you believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven one day. So you can go to heaven, so you can go to heaven, so you can go to heaven. That's just the the end goal. Get out of here, escape this place. Which is not at all a biblical view. Jesus and scripture say that the natural world is gloriously good. The very opening of the scriptures is this good God making the earth. And every step of the way, what does he say? It is good. It is good by virtue of the fact of the one who made it. Do you know that, that right now the insurance on the Mona Lisa, do you know what it's for? $900 million. And the most expensive painting to ever sell in the history of the earth was another da Vinci painting called Salvador Mundi or whatever. It's basically Italian for Savior of the World. It's a painting of Jesus. It sold for like $540-something million. And, and the, the, the idea is, is that because God made this world, and he is so good, speaks to the value of it. Are you with me? And in a biblical worldview, salvation is God actually restoring and redeeming this world. Not, not, not destroying it us and us all escaping to this mystical, ghost-like you know, place, but actually the restoration, new heavens, new earth. There is resurrection, new bodies. Like, this was absurd in the days that Christianity hit the world with the theology of the early church after Jesus' resurrection. It was scandalous. They thought it was absolute foolishness. The idea that God would become human in itself was preposterous. And then then in his victory, he came back in an earthly body? What? Stupid. Absolute foolishness. Scandalous. No self-respecting God would do such a thing to himself. You know? I heard one author, I should got to give a shout out. A lot of what I'm sharing from is inspired by a book I've been reading called Love Thy Body. I highly recommend it. Uh, but she refers to this, you know, thing about the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming human as the Bethlehem bombshell. I just loved it. It was like, yep, that was revolutionary. And I just got to say, like us as the church, I believe we have to repent and distance ourselves from any sort of view that diminishes the value of this world, the natural world in which we find ourselves living. A return to the biblical vision of this good world. I mean, the ultimate salvation peace is heaven and earth coming together. And guess what? It's heaven coming to earth. This union. Now, moving on from those today, we have our real popular evolutionary materialism. And I, I make a, a point of putting in materialism because I know there's a lot of people out there who 
there's a thing called evolutionary theism. In other words, people who believe that God created the world through the process of evolution. Okay? Evolutionary materialism is distinctly different. It's the belief that actually the only thing that exists is this material world in which we live. Made, made famous, of course, by Charles Darwin, right? Theory of evolution. And under this view of the world, there is nothing more than matter. Matter is the ultimate thing. The material world is all that there is, right? With that view, there really is no purpose or design, only random variations and natural selection. You guys with me? Richard Dawkins, well-known scientist, uh, big promote, proponent of atheism, one of the most passionate preachers of Darwin, quoted saying this, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered has no purpose in mind. Dawkins loves to point out the universe doesn't care about you. No, you don't matter. <laughs> Your life has no meaning. Get over it. <laughs> you know, like you, you can hear it all throughout his writing. And he's, and he, he's an intelligent man. Very intelligent man. But when you have this, this idea of a world with no purpose and no meaning, you're then living in a world ultimately with no morals. No way things ought to be. We're not subject to any higher meaning or moral law. Actually, meaning and morality are subject to us. and We make what we want of them. It's from this worldview that we get the common notion of my truth. What's true for me may not be true for you. Sound familiar? This doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like, like gravity is gravity. Light is light. Dark is dark. Like, like these things are, are, are set. They're fixed. Right? The problem with it, too, is that on a social level, we're getting somewhere, okay? You with me? The way this works out is basically whatever the most powerful group agrees upon will be the meaning of morality everyone else around must accept. But in the end, no matter what we think or what we make of it, moral law transcends pop culture. Murder will always be bad. Saving lives will always be good. Rape will always be bad. Making love will always be good. Can I get an amen? Come on. I got one in here. Stealing is bad. Giving is good. Lying is bad. Telling the truth is good. These are not just culturally constructed concepts that we change at will. And the tragedy of this thing that we call sin, which is, which is breaking that law, moving away from it, deviating from it, is that it's like a fall away from what God intended. Because we have this vision that a good God created a good world, and he designed a way for life to flourish 
in his world. He designed a way for you to flourish in his world. And seeking to understand his laws and his ways is seeking to understand how to live, how to be human, how to flourish in this good world with the good life that you've been given. Sin is a tragedy. Like the Bible says that, that all of us, let's be clear about this, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you notice he says he falls short of the glory of God. What makes it so tragic is God has such a good plan for your life. He has such a beautiful plan for how life is to work in his world. And to miss out on that plan is tragic. It's like death. Sin is tragic for that reason, not because you are disappointing some distant God's arbitrary rules. It's the great good that you're made for that makes falling away from it so painful to watch, so tragic. Again, C.S. Lewis describes all of us. He says this in relationship to the concept we're talking about right now. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And sadly, we often reduce following God's law to this religious legalism, this just keeping the rules so God will like me kind of thing, which is totally garbage. God loves you. You can't change that. It doesn't matter how far you fall. It doesn't matter how deceived you are. It doesn't matter how blind or walking in darkness or lost a person may be. God loves them. God loves you. That's why it's so tragic. That's why we get passionate about these contentious issues out there. Because we love people. And this, like, this religious legalism thing, it distorts and destroys the goodness of God's law. Totally misrepresents it. I can't think of a better example than some of what we were talking about this last month. You know, about rest, about God gave this command for the Sabbath rest in our lives. This is a law of God. And I can't think of a better example of the Ten Commandments, of a law that was so obviously given for our good. And what did the Pharisees do with it? They turned this liberating blessing into a legalistic burden. The very thing that was intended to be for people's good, they turned it into this just legalistic version of, can't do this, can't do that, da, 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 you know. And Jesus just comes on the scene and blasts that whole concept out of the water. 
And we need Jesus, guys. Like, without Jesus, we turn the law of God into legalistic religion. All of us will do it. Because we want to look good. Because we have crazy, huge egos that need to be humbled. But the thing I find a hard time with is, is we talk often about all these different controversial topics out there. You can probably think of a few off the top of your head. So we often jump into them with the opening question of like, what's wrong with fill in the blank? And I feel like that, that approach is the beginning of a low-level conversation. And I would, I would, I would submit to you and invite you to try out questions like what's the purpose for fill in the blank what did God have in mind when he created fill in the blank and we begin to long and look for to understand this purpose this meaning these reasons these beautiful truths begin to emerge And the answer to what's wrong with fill in the blank becomes very obvious. Because there's great beauty in what God has made. There's great purpose in it. My hope in in, in looking into this passage today and opening up the conversation that this this message is opening up is, is that we would let a love for the created material world that God has made and a conviction that it's created by a good God, inspire us to understand and apply his ways that lead to life. It's my hope that we, like the psalmist who wrote this, could, could, could rejoice in the goodness of God's law, that we could speak of it with endearing terms, that him actually showing us the way that leads to life is something that we could celebrate and get happy about and long to look into more, that we would see it as more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, like the psalmist. You know, we often think about having just freedom to do whatever we want. That's what, that's what I need. Imagine with me a fish in the water looking up at us walking on the sidewalk beside the ocean and being like, man, I'd want to be one of them. Where is that fish more free? On the sidewalk or in the ocean? There's actually an environment of restriction that that thing is created for where it has its greatest freedom and its greatest flourishing in the water. We sang at the end of the songs today, it's only in your will that I am free. And I love the way the psalm ends. We need mercy. Because guess what, guys? If you walk out today with like, okay, I got to learn the law and I got to keep it and I can do this, you know, like... Sorry, it's not going to work out for you. We all fall short. 
No one lives perfectly except Jesus. Look at these last few verses. He says, uh, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. In other words, like, I don't even have the ability to know all the things I'm doing wrong. Lord, please just forgive me for the things I have no clue that I'm doing wrong. But then also, look at the next one. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Like, guys, I don't know about you, but I do things willfully sometimes that I know I shouldn't. Lord, help me. Don't let those things rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. When will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression? When God forgives me and when God keeps me. We all need his grace and his mercy at work in our lives. And and I think we need to know this, church. Don't forget it. All have sinned. That's you. All right, have a good day. (laughs) Because this is the thing that I feel like I watch happen, and you probably go, oh, yeah, I've seen a bit of that, is that we get into these culture wars these disagreements on these controversial topics, and we get so aggressive and visceral and angry towards people who don't see the same way with our neighbors. I would like to point out to you that Jesus talks very little, if at all, I I don't believe at all, about people being wrong. He talks a lot more about people being lost and blind, deceived, misled, lost in darkness. And when you look at the life of Jesus, this one who did not compromise on the truth, let's be clear, nobody spoke about hell and judgment and consequence more than Jesus. But he held together grace and truth. And the one who wouldn't compromise on the truth, we see him again and again feeling compassion and grieved when he sees people in their condition. Matthew 9.36 says, when Jesus looked out on the crowds, he had compassion on them because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When, When he came to Jerusalem, Luke 19 says that he wept when he looked over the city. And out of Jesus' mouth, he says they didn't know the day of their visitation. God had come to them, offering them the way of salvation, the way that leads to life, upholding and fulfilling, not abolishing, right, the law of God. But they didn't see and they didn't know. Jesus wept. He did not shout from the rooftops, you idiots! So stupid. How can you, you know. He wept. You want to know how to apply and live out the law of God? Look at Jesus, the perfect teacher, 
the perfect embodiment of it, the one who fulfills it. What I would say to you this is that if the lies that the people and the culture around you are buying into and believing stir up more aggression in you than compassion, something's distorted in your perspective. So my hope in, in, in opening this up and talking about it is that we can realize that this world we live in is really good. Made by a gloriously good God. And that learning his ways, his law, is essential for flourishing life. And that rather than getting caught up in these, these low-level conversations, what's wrong with this and that, that we could talk about purpose and meaning and why these various things he's made exist. So I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to invite Kelly to come up and close us out. Lord, we ask that you would help us to love your word and to learn from what you've made. God, teach us to display the beauty and the glory and the goodness of your ways in the world that others would long to know you more as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.